Well, as uh, some of you know, it is the season, a time of year for graduation speeches. That time when, theoretically at least, wisdom and inspiration is being passed down from one generation to the next, theoretically at least. That's what we would like. Uh, sadly, uh, too often, too much on too many of our college campuses today across this great land, it's not wisdom and inspiration that's passed down, but rather division and intolerance that is modeled for differing opinions. Here's the dynamic. If you haven't been paying attention to the news, every spring you hear this more and more and more of this sort of thing, this three-part act playing itself out. You have a highly opinionated, less informed, hostile group of of students within the student body getting all up in arms about who has been invited to speak. Then you have this feckless, gutless, I hate to be strong, but uh, group of faculty and folks in the administration wringing their hands over what might happen if they don't listen to these little rebels over here. And then third act, disinvitations. Uh, go out to the speakers or declines. You know, the speakers say, heck with this. I, you know, they say, I don't want to distract from the ceremony. What they really mean is I don't want to be a part of the ceremony. Um, there's your three-part act. And so I, I take a step back from that and I think to myself, well, we still need wisdom and inspiration to be passed down, right? And it would seem that perhaps we need it all the more in, in areas such as, well, can we actually be civil? Um, can we actually get along with each other? Can we act, is there anything to camaraderie and fellowship and, and such? We still need that, but we're clearly not going to find that from our institutions, our great institutions of higher learning. So where then are we going to find such wisdom and inspiration to be passed down? Is it possible? And if so, where are we going to find it? Well, you know where I'm going. To the Scriptures to God's Word, because it is possible and it can be found. And if you have your Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me now to the book of Philippians. We are getting back into our study uh, in this great letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. We're in Philippians chapter 2. If you're trying to find it, uh, it's after the Gospels, so it's New Testament after the Gospels. And after Acts, it's one of the series of letters that Paul wrote, so after Acts, which is and you have Romans and the Corinthian letters and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians. So it's before Colossians. So Philippians, right there, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Philippians 2, uh, we're really honing in on verses 5 through 11, uh, but I'm going to start back in verse 1. So chapter 2, starting in verse, in verse 1. Uh, hear now God's word. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to, the, to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Pray with me. Lord, thank you for these few minutes that we have here at the start of the day, at the start of the week. And we pray that that would not be, that would not be without effect, that indeed that our week, this day to come, this week to come would be shaped by the very things that we are doing here, that you would help us in our reflection to do so wisely uh, as we are being prepared for things we're planning on, and then, of course, things we just plain couldn't plan on. Um, we pray that you'd prepare us um, to face what is coming, to face what you are bringing to us, to face what we know you will bring us through. Uh, we pray that you would shape our minds and hearts. Um, we need this more than we know. Um, and so we ask that you would speak to our hearts, that you would be our teacher. Uh, we would be truly disciples sitting at your feet. Um, glad for this, these few minutes that we have with you together. Amen. Well, speaking of graduation, uh, some years ago, uh, I received a, a graduation gift. Uh, I think it was for college, I think. It was Charles Sheldon's little book, In His Steps. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that. It was published in uh, 1896, so it's been around a long time. It has sold over some roughly 300 million copies. Well, you know, it's an old book. Um, Charles Sheldon's In His Steps, uh, if, if you're familiar with it, the story revolves around, I'll just quickly summarize it, a, 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 pa a pastor who gives a challenge to his congregation. And the, the challenge goes something like this. Do not do anything without first asking, what would Jesus do? Oh, wait a minute. That sounds, does that sound familiar? Yeah, that's where they got it from. Charles Sheldon's In His Steps, 1896, asking the question, what would Jesus do? And, and the whole book, the theme of the book, the, the thrust of the plot is, is set on that challenge. And these uh, episodes looking at individuals whose lives are turned upside down when they accept that challenge, which takes me to this, to our text, to the challenge, if you will, that Paul is making to his readers to live out the gospel by living as one. That's what we talked about weeks ago. I'm sure you remember it. Weeks ago, verses 1 through 4 of this chapter, that was really the theme. We are to um, live out the gospel by living as one, but it begs the question, how are we to do that? And Paul makes that clear as well, with out of uh, hearts that are beating with the blood, if you will, of humility. Um, that's the way to live out this charge. And then comes, that's where verses 5 through 11 come into play, what is really what New Testament scholars most will say is, a, is likely a hymn. And depending on how your English translation is set up, I don't know, you know, in terms of the margins and whatnot, but a lot of translations rightfully set it aside 
you know, pushing in the indentations just a little bit to show that in the Greek it would seem that Paul is it's either a hymn that he has written himself, and that's quite possible, or it's something that he's simply quoting from. But in any case, it's likely something of a poetic nature, and which, by the way, please understand it's not really intended to be, as some have gotten kind of sidetracked through the centuries, trying to take this as though it's intended to be an exhaustive theological treatise on the mysteries of the Trinity and, and the, du the dual nature of Jesus as the God-man. Now, this informs that, but that's not really its purpose. Its purpose is to point us towards humility, to show us what it looks like by pointing us to Jesus. That's really the purpose. So however you want to you know, dissect it, you have to understand its purpose and that is to take us to Jesus. Um, so let me, let me read verse 5 again and kind of get us started there. Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now some of you probably have a footnote. If you go down to the footnote bottom of the page, you can see there's a little bit of ambiguity in the Greek, and there's a good, very good reason to believe that perhaps another way to translate that second clause, let me read the first again, Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's a quite likely the better way to translate the clause. So have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Meaning, Paul is saying Jesus is our model in this. Jesus is our example in this. He's calling us to what has been referred to for the centuries past, to the imitation of Christ. Now, please understand, Paul is not saying, okay, Paul is not saying Live like Jesus and he'll love you for it. That is not what Paul is saying here in any way at all. What Paul is saying here is Jesus loves you already. And he can't love you any more now than he already does. Okay? Let's get that settled. Jesus loves you as it is. Now the more you take that into your heart, the more you grapple with that, the more that gets down into your bones. You then will want to follow him. You then will want to be like him. You then will have a life that will be shaped according to a pattern such that you will want to please him. You will want to serve him. Well, friends, this is what it looks like. That's what he's showing us here. The imitation of Christ. Jesus as our model. Jesus as our example. We need models, folks. We need examples. The, the more important something is, like I think of Nathan and Vizi, right? You guys need older parents to show you what does this look like? Help, right? Because it's so important and it's so hard. And you take those two ingredients, something that is so important and so hard, and that's what we have here, lives, life together in unity out of a heartbeat of humility. That is so important and so hard that we are in desperate need of someone to show us how. What does it look like? Show me what it looks like. And that's what Paul is laying out here in what's oftentimes referred to as the Christ hymn, uh, verses 5 through 11 here of Philippians chapter 2. What Paul is saying is this. Let me just if I can encapsulate it. Christ has shown us the way of true humility. And we need to pursue that for the sake of true unity. Okay, let me say that again. Christ has shown us the way of true humility. 
And we need to pursue that for the sake of true unity. That's what he's getting at here in the fullness of the context of Philippians 2. Now, he walks us through three, if you want to think in terms of what he describes here as, a, as, a, as an act, uh, dramatic acts, three acts to the play. One, before the beginning, he shows us this. Jesus is showing us this. Second act, act two, through each stage of the drama. And number three, to the very end. To the very end, and that's what we see here. Jesus as our model, as our example, the, the one who's showing us the way. Okay, let's look at it in turn. Act 1, before the beginning, verses 5 and 6. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Okay, who is Jesus? What is his nature? That's what Paul is getting at here. What are the, the heights from which he stooped? Well... He is described as being in the form of God. Now, what does that mean? To be the, the word form here is describing some uh, participating in or possessing the essence of a thing. That is to say, the form is the very nature. Translation: Jesus is God. That's what Paul is saying here. Okay, Jesus in his very nature is God. Before anything was or is, is Jesus because he is part of the second person of the Trinity. He is God. This is speaking to his pre-existence. We could just stop there and give the benediction. I mean, you know, when you think, just thinking on that, the eternal pre-existence of Jesus of Nazareth is an astonishing thing. He's applying this to him. So not just his nature, who he is, but what does he do with it? How does Jesus live that out? Well, he tells us that he, he did not deem it to be a thing to be grasped. Equality with God, a thing to be grasped. Meaning, he didn't deem it to be something that was to be kept to himself or exploited for his um, advantage. He, Jesus is the living, eternally speaking, embodiment of the very thing Paul is admonishing his readers to live out in verses 3 and 4. So go back. Verses 3 and 4, I'm going to reread it with Jesus as the, as the subject here because of what we're learning here in verses 5 and 6. Jesus does nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility he counts others more significant than himself. He does not look to his own interests, but to the interests of others. You see, he is forever, Jesus is forever the divine king, ever ready and willing to give it all away. That's who we're learning who this is from the start of the Christ hymn. You know, it's sort of like that, that axiom, if you only knew where so-and-so came from, if you only knew who they were, then you'd appreciate all the more what it is they've done, right? You hear that all the time. It's, it's, it's a, uh, a, a formula that's being applied more and more to some of these reality TV shows like Undercover Boss would be an example if you've if you watched that. The idea being you've got this executive who goes undercover incognito uh, to try and just, you know, figure out what's the, what are the inner workings of my company, what's, how can we be improving some things, how can I be rewarding some folks who are really laying themselves out. And, of course, the big thing that everyone's waiting for is at the end of the episode, the reveal when everyone discovers who he or she really is. And it's really cool. Well... What does it have to do with unity and life together? This before the beginning and learning who Jesus is and where he's come from. Um, let me just assume for a minute that you've got some weight. Now, by that, what I mean is you've got power. You've got influence. You've got authority. And you all do. You don't think you do. But everyone here in this room has, in some way, power, influence, and authority 
that you exercise in, in the spheres of your life. It might be in your family. It might be amidst your friends. It might be at work. It might be at school. Power, influence, authority. We all have it. To be human, to be in relationship with people. is power, influence, and authority. We all wield. How are you wielding it? You see, the model Jesus sets before us here is completely different than the model of the world and the inclination of our hearts. How do you wield the power? How are you handling your weight? Let me push it a little further. Second point in this is that we all have a weight problem. I'm not saying another reality show we need to go on The Biggest Loser. That's what I'm saying. We have a weight problem in this. We think too much of our power, influence, and authority. It's way too big in our eyes. And when we look at Jesus' eternal weight, His glory, His power, His influence, His authority, it puts ours into perspective, which therein, if you allow it to, will make you humble, which has a way of uniting us. You see what this has to do with unity and life together, looking at how Jesus models this for us from the very, if I can say, before the beginning. Before there was a beginning. This is Jesus. He has shown us the way of true humility. We've got to pursue this for true unity. Second act, act two. He is descending now. Descending, another step down, down. Verses 5 through 8, read it again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay, through each stage, two stages. One, his life. Okay. He's described as um, pouring himself out, emptying himself, uh, making himself nothing, which, by, which does not mean that he gave up in the incarnation, in becoming human. It's not that he gave up becoming God. It's not that he gave up his divine nature, but rather he took to himself a human nature. He did not de deny or give up his divine nature, but he gave up his divine rights. He gave up his divine privileges and became man. Became man. It's the incarnation, the one, as Paul says here, you see that word form twice in here. The one who is eternally in the form of God takes the form of a servant. So remember I said he's truly God, that form thing? He's truly servant, the form thing. The one who is eternally God becomes man. The God Man, a servant. This, and this is not a myth. This is not, you know, one of those old myths that talks about, you know, this God in disguise who's just walking around. No, he's not in disguise. He is God and he is man at the same time. Somehow, exactly like us. And yet at the same time, utterly different. It's the mystery of the Incarnation, which, by the way, if you think in terms of what orthodoxy meant for Saul, well, Paul, who used to be Saul, the Jewish Pharisee, this is a shocking thing to say for a first century Jew. And you've got to ask yourself, where did that come from? That does not just come like a comet. Uh, well, maybe it did. <laughs> um, pushing on. 
Second stage, his life, his death. His death is a paradox here. Uh, we're talking about the author of life giving himself over to death. We are talking about the Son of God dead, a corpse. Skin gray, a smell coming on. No life, no pulse, no nothing. The Son of God dead and buried in a tomb. Do you see the descent? It's not just that he is willing to do this. It's not just that he then comes as a man, as one of us, but he dies. And then Paul pushes it further. It's not just that he, the fact of his death, but the means of his death, the manner of his death, the cross. Which, of course, as Christians, we know that is a saving death, but we cannot step away from this reality, and that is it is a shameful death. And you see how far Jesus descends. He goes down, 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 as far down as he can to lift us up. To lift us up. You see the heights from which he stooped and then the depths to which he stooped. Now, again, I think in terms of what we read at the beginning of the service from John 13. Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet. I mean, this is so characteristic of him. Eternally before, if I can use that term, and then in his days on this earth, it's just who he is. It's just what he, if you will, what he does. It just comes out of him. Serving, bowing low. And we'll get into Act 3 here in just a minute. All right, what does this have to do with unity and life together? The more we contemplate who Jesus is and what it is that he has done, the more that will put perspective, give perspective, not just for our weight problems, but for our, can I call it this, a sin problem. When we wrestle and contemplate who Jesus is and what he has done, it forces us to grapple with how far gone we are, how lost and blind we are without Him. And coupled to that, second part of the application, coupled to that, the more we grapple with that, it forces us to move away from, increasingly, our inclination, which is, for, you know, for me to compare myself to you and you to compare yourself to me, and each of us feel a little bit better about ourselves because we think to ourselves, well, I'm not as bad as him or her. And what this forces us to do is, is if we take this seriously and honestly, is stop that game. We're looking in the If we're going to do the comparison game, we're looking in the wrong place. We need to look to him, compare ourselves with him. See, who is this and what is it that he has done for us? And you see what that does to encouraging humility and therein encouraging unity. I'll put it this way. Harmony between us only comes about as humility is growing within us. Harmony between us is only going to take place as there is humility within us. And the incarnation and the crucifixion certainly do point us in that direction. So again, you see, in, in not just before the beginning, but through each stage, Jesus is showing us the way of true hum humility 
that which we have got to pursue for the sake of true unity. All right, Act 3, to the very end, eternally future, if you will. Now, we looked at eternity past, and we see in space and time his days on this earth. He's laying it out, the model, the example, showing us the way, what it means to, to live in, in the imitation of Christ, and now eternally future to the very end. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, there's two things being described here, his exaltation and this great confession. His exaltation, what are the grounds for that? What, why? What, what is going on here? Jesus exalted the, the name above every name and all of that. Well, it's because of his descent. He has gone as far down as you could possibly go. It is because of his humiliation. That is the grounds for his exaltation. The Father, the Father is gladly rejoicing in the person and the work of the Son. And that is this inter-Trinitarian exaltation that is taking place here. And because a consequence of that, Jesus is given a new name. Now, it's not a renaming. It's not that the old name wasn't good, and now we're going to... It's, it's, it's a name that recognizes who he is, what he has done, a name that is above all names. Now, Paul is he's not explicit here, but reading between the lines, there's really only one name this could be. The Lord, Yahweh, Jesus is God. Jesus is the Lord. Reading back in your Old Testament, whenever you see that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Yahweh, I am. Who, that is, again, that is what is being declared here. Now, with that, we also read of this confession. The Father declares who Jesus is, and then we read of everyone and everything else agreeing. Saying the same. Now, everything and everyone else is going to see this one day and say this one day, but not in all cases, if you will, gladly. Understand, Paul is not describing here universal salvation. He's talking about a universal declaration, a universal confession, so that whether you bent the knee before he comes back or after, one way or another, Jesus is going to get his due. So my friends, now is the time to bend that knee. Waiting is not good. One way or the other, Jesus is going to give his due. Now, get his due. And here's the wonderful part about this, even more. He's going to get his due, and just like he is prone to do, he's going to give that away too. I don't know if you caught this. It's the very, very, very end of verse 11. Read it again. Back up to verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus is going to get this universal cosmic praise from everyone and everything else, and he's not going to grasp that either. He's not going to clutch that. He's not going to manipulate that. He's not going to leverage that. He's going to give that to the Father, which therein will make him all the more worthy of that exaltation. 
which is so, so stunning. That's not the way we do things. It's, it's why, I don't know if you saw this uh, um, in the news this past week, it was so striking. Um, I'm not, I don't follow the NBA, but I saw this and I just had to see it. Kevin Durant, um, in his acceptance speech just a few days ago for the Most Valuable Player Award, okay? Now, usually, you never, ever hear or see anything like this, but I encourage you, when you go home tonight, well, tonight, I don't know how long you're staying, today, um, I only have just a few more minutes, but um, uh, look this up, Kevin Durant's NBA MVP Award acceptance speech, where there is not a smidgen, not an iota of self-congratulatory boasting, but rather this tender, humble, broken, thankful appreciation of his mother. And there she is in the audience, and all that she has given up. And before the watching world, and YouTube, he says, you're the MVP. Which, my friends, for my money, again, I'm not, I don't follow the NBA, but for my money, makes him all the more worthy of the award that he got. This one that he's now, in essence, giving up. Well, that's just like a slight glimmer of a, of a shadowy reflection of what you see here in verse 11. Jesus is not going to keep it for himself. Now, what, but again, what does that have to do with unity? It's great to hear, but what does that have to do with unity and life together? Well, I'll tell you, it, it, knowing this, as in all things, knowing how things are going to end does help us hang on. It does help us to endure. When you really know the end of the story, which we do here, and so we know that in those days when you're, you're trying, you honestly are, you're trying to, to walk in this path of humility for the sake of unity, but you're just hitting the wall and, and there's a lot of kinds of pushback and you, don't, you feel like it's just in vain. You have the assurance here that it's not. It's not. Jesus is going to get his due. It's not going to be in vain. But there's one other thing, because I think this will really encourage your heart, if you'll, if you'll hear it. And that is, he's going to get his due, and he's going to give it up. He's going to get his due, and he's going to give his due to the Father. And my friends, we're going to be caught up in that. We're going to be a part of his getting it and giving it, getting it and giving it. We're going to be right in the middle of all that, surrounded by it and transformed by it, renewed by it, changed by it, such that we are, you know, our, my heart, your heart is so caught up with selfish ambition and vain conceit. No more. Because we're going to be caught up in that beautiful song and exchange in the tr within the Trinity of the Father exalting the Son and the Son giving the praise right back to the Father. And we're going to be right in the middle of it. So, hang on. Hang on. He has shown us the way of true humility. We need this for the sake of then the unity. Now, I really don't know a, a better whole example of this, I've been saving, holding what's that on you, um, than a description Eric Metaxas gives of George Washington, our, our first president, in case you didn't know. Um, and, and Metaxas has done some good reading, uh, writing on this. I just want to read to you this description of, of Washington, the father of our country. It's, it's, it's helpful, I think. After eight years of war, America had won its independence from Britain. 
Everyone wondered what General Washington would do next. Perhaps, as one of his officers suggested, he should become King George I of America. This is true. Maybe you didn't hear this in your history books, but it's true. But Washington would have none of it. His attitude toward the idea that he should grab the reins of civilian power is dramatically illustrated in an incident that reveals his singular greatness. Here it is. By war's end, the mood of the officers of the Continental Army had turned ugly. They were angry because Congress, which was broke, and Metaxas has to add, by the way, some things never change, was unlikely to honor its promise to compensate the soldiers for years of service. So in March of 1783, an anonymous letter made the rounds in Newburgh, New York, where Washington's men were quartered. If Congress did not guarantee back pay, the letter threatened the army would disband, even if the war continued. This was a serious threat because the peace treaty would not be signed for another six months. And if the peace were signed, well, then the army would simply refuse to dissolve, a clear threat to Congress. In effect, the leaders of the Newburgh conspiracy were proposing tyranny and treason both. Washington got wind of the plot, and at noon on March 16th, he arrived at the officers' meeting and made directly for the podium. First, he rebuked them for their selfish plans, appealed to their honor and love of country, and urged them to be patient. But what happened next may have changed the course of history. Washington reached into his pocket and pulled out a letter from a Virginia congressman. He began to read it aloud, appearing to stumble over the words. The general then reached into his waistcoat pocket and took out a pair of spectacles. Washington apologized for the delay, saying, Gentlemen, you must pardon me. I have grown gray in your service and now find myself growing blind. In an instant, the mood of these battle-hardened officers was utterly changed. Some of them wept openly as Washington read the letter and then quietly left the room. The temptation to crown Washington king and wrest control from Congress had been dealt a death blow. Washington's refusal to seize power after defeating the most powerful empire on earth absolutely amazed King George III of England and still amazes us today, as it certainly should, as does his decision to voluntarily give up the presidency after eight years. These were among the greatest acts of one of history's greatest men. Well, here's my question. All right, so this is astonishing, right? We hold George Washington in such high regard. He's the father of the country. I mean, he's on our, our currency. He's in our, on our monuments. He's, all these statues, all these things named. You may have heard there's a state named after him. I won't tell you which one. Um, this is, it's a powerful thing that he's done. It, it's, it's, the story is power, it's true, powerful, and winsome. And I want to ask, why? What is it that just strikes such a chord? When we hear this story of this great man giving up all this, well, I think there's two reasons. One, it's so different. There's so few politicians today that would go anywhere near this. And so it's refreshing and shocking and we just it just stands out. I don't think that goes far enough. I think the other reason is this, the, the truer reason is it's, it's, this is what he did reflects something that's deeply rooted in the fabric of creation, in the fabric of reality where the way up is down. Where the one who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted, and that's what Jesus shows us. Jesus takes that very path in how he accomplishes our salvation. And as his followers, if we are to apply that salvation, if we're to work it out and live it out, we are to do the same. We're to do the same. Let's pray.
Lord, you have made us in the image, your image, of the triune God. We are relational creatures. That's how we've been made, and you've saved us to be what you made us to be, to renew us, to redeem us. But we know that requires this humility that we just don't have in and of ourselves. This is so, this unity and humility is so important and hard, and we need, again, we find ourselves saying again and again and again for so many different reasons, oh Jesus, we need you. And we need you just as a model. We need you just as to show us the way. We thank you that the one eternally in the form of God took on the form of the servant making the way and showing the way as well. And we pray that this would be what fills our sight and grips our heart, that it would be true of us, that we would gladly give ourselves to you and as an expression of that to each other. In your name we pray. Amen.